Okay, good evening everyone. Broadcasting live, August 19th. You got a, we got, we got a quote about the concept of triage. The idea that when you can't help everyone, you have to prioritize. And you prioritize by making three groups. Robin, would you like to read the... Sure. Sure. There are three types of sick people to be found in the world. What three? There is the sick person who, whether or not he obtains the proper diet, medicines, and nursing, will not recover from his illness. Then there is the sick person who, whether or not he obtains the proper diet, medicine, and nursing, will recover from his sickness anyway. And lastly, there is the sick person who will recover from his illness only if he gets the proper diet, medicines, and nursing. It is for this last type that proper diet, medicine, and nursing should be prescribed, but the others should be looked after also. Now, there are three types of persons in the world who can be compared to the three types of sick persons. Which three? There is the person who, whether or not he gets the chance of seeing the Tathagata and learning the Dhamma and discipline, will not enter the perfection of things that are skillful. Again, there is the person who, whether or not he gets the chance of seeing the Tathagata and learning the Dhamma and discipline, will enter the perfection of things that are skillful. And again, there is the person who will enter in the perfection of things that are skillful only if he gets the chance of seeing the Tathagata and learning the Dhamma and discipline. It is on account of this last person that the Dhamma is proclaimed, but it should be taught to others also. Thank you. So this, um, this is actually a well-known concept, as I understand, in war. Uh, for wartime medics when there's or when there's a catastrophe or so on it actually is a thing where you have to do what is called triage triage tri, tri meaning three you separate into three groups those who you can help uh, and those who don't need your help and those who you can't help or those whose those for whom the help is life, is critical to their ability to live. That's the group that you're targeting. You don't target those who have injuries but won't die from them. You have to go for the those that are life-threatening. And those that are going to die, even if you help them, you don't help them. Uh, or you 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 prioritize accordingly, and I think that's the point here is priority. So yes, you teach all, but there is a sense that priority should be put on those who both need it and will benefit from it. It's um, I've brought this up before in relation to teaching. Uh, disabled people, mentally disabled children or people um, teaching those people who 
are not easily able to understand the Dhamma, uh, even those people who don't want to hear the Dhamma. And it's a matter of, um, what do you call, cost-benefit ratio, because theoretically you want to just help, and you, you do as much as you can to help, but um, the question is whether you're you are actually the, the benefit that's actually going to come from the work that you do, and part of helping is assessing that benefit where where that benefit comes into play uh, in in all aspects of the cultivation of goodness. The Buddha encouraged what we call vimangsa, which means discrimination not just doing, doing, doing. You have to adjust accordingly. Anattapindika came to the Buddha and said that he discriminated. And he was, when, when, he, when he gave gifts, he was careful to consider who deserved the gift and not just give indiscriminately. And the Buddha praised him. He said, yes, that's the way. In the past, wise men did the same. And this is the proper way to... to cultivate goodness is with discrimination so uh, this is one reason why I, I usually I often answer that you're better off helping those people who are best able to understand the teachings uh, you can avoid those who are already on the right path to some extent but those people the, the most important the highest priority should be put on those people who maybe have, haven't even heard the teachings, um, but regardless are those who are capable of progress, uh, who have not yet progressed but are readily capable. Because you, do so, you put forth such little effort and you get the most benefit because those people in turn, those beings who have gained thereby, become your the army the next generation they uh, spread the teaching whereas if you spend your whole life helping people who are not going to be able to turn around and then help others you have had very little impact on the world and uh, part of this is the idea that uh, having helped those who are easily benefited from the teachings um, those people then turn around and benefit others who are maybe less ready. And so it's also a ripple effect, like a trickle-down effect, or more like a ripple effect, helping those who are best deserving of it, or not deserving, but easiest to teach. So, um, I mean, a big part of uh spreading Buddhism in the modern age over the internet, an exciting aspect of it is how easy it is to get the word out because you start to realize that um, a great uh, a great many people out there are simply lacking the knowledge of what is the right path, how to practice properly to see things clearly, just the basic knowledge and understanding of what the Buddha taught 
And if they had that, they would be able to progress quickly. And so just by putting the information out there, you often get feedback uh, to, the, to the tune of uh, people changing their lives just from hearing things that they had never heard, just from learning simple things that they'd never learned. So that's that's all. This is a, like a useful quote. Uh, part of it, one thing, a couple of points. Is the first is that um, this quote makes reminds us that not everybody who hears the Buddha's teaching is going to understand it, is going to benefit from it, or benefit or not is is going. Not everyone who listens to the Buddha's teaching hears the Buddha's teaching, learns the Buddha's teaching, is going to realize the truth of it, is going to become enlightened from it. The second point is that uh, not everybody who is going to become enlightened has to follow the teachings of a Buddha. They can become what we would call a Buddha for themselves, by themselves. So the idea that Buddhism is Buddhist is, is, doesn't hold, you know, that you have to be a Buddhist to become enlightened or so on. And on the other hand, just being a Buddhist, the idea that that's enough, following the Buddha's teaching, it's not enough. Some people will never put forth the effort. I don't want to be such a person. The Buddha said it's like a spoon. Such people are like a spoon that never tastes the soup, even though the spoon can be in the soup uh, for a thousand years. Well, not a thousand years. No matter how long the, soup, the spoon is in the soup, it will never taste the flavor of the soup. So that's the well that's the quote tonight. Anybody have any questions? Looks like our viewers are chatting. They're using <laughs> the chat box to chat. That's a simple fun? question. You you have a question? I have a simple question. For a monastic, what's what is the difference between the preceptor and the teacher? Uh huh. Um, right. Okay. So let me break it down. A monk who ordains, and this is going for the male monks. For females, I think it's a little bit different. Uh, the numbers might be a little bit different, but it's. I think it's the same, close to the same. Now, there's, there's a little bit of technical differences, but anyway, going by the, the male monks, um, for the first five years, you're what's called a nawaka, which means you have to stay with what we call a teacher. Uh, after five years, you are allowed to live without a teacher. After 10 years, you can, be, become, you're, become, can become qualified to be either a teacher or a preceptor. Now, a preceptor is the person who uh, oversaw the ordination. So it's someone who's qualified to oversee the ordination. They are also considered to be uh, that monk's default teacher. So anytime they are in the same monastery with that monk, with that monk, that monk is also their teacher. Now, this teacher, the only meaning there is that... Um, 
they qualify uh, or they fulfill the the they fulfill the uh, obligation I don't know exactly how you to say this uh, of the they feel that fulfill the requirement of the new monk so a monk who's under five years as a monk has to stay in the same monastery with such a monk now the preceptor automatically qualifies and automatically becomes that so if if i'm a new monk and i go to the monastery where my teacher is i don't have to do anything immediately they are my teacher uh, if i leave if and when i leave my teacher teacher's monastery or my teacher leaves the monastery i have to find if i'm still under five years as a monk i have to find a monk who can act as what we call the teacher doesn't mean that they actually have to do any teaching though that's assumed the meaning is that they are the what do you call the uh, person who the officer in charge and the person who oversees that monk so you have to go and find such a monk who's at least 10 years a monk and fulfills other basic qualifications of being a good monk and uh, a request that it requests to take dependence, what we call dependence, on the teacher. So if it's not your preceptor, you actually have to go to them and request it, and they have to accept, and then you consider that they're your teacher. So it's it, it doesn't technically have anything to do with teaching, though that's the role that you put them in. Uh, it's, it's the role of being a supervisor is the word. And so they, they stay your teacher until you leave them or until your preceptor comes back, in which case immediately the preceptor becomes, fulfills that quali that requirement. Okay, so the, the preceptor is the first teacher or are there some preceptors who just ordain people and then the ordained person immediately finds a, a different teacher? Well, then you never really call the preceptor a teacher. They're they're called the preceptor, the upajaya, but they fulfill the requirement, and they they fulfill it. They override any other teachers. So, yes, right away they are they are they fulfill that requirement, uh, and you can't take a teacher as long as you're with your preceptor. You can you can denounce your preceptor. You can leave him and say you no longer want that person to be your supervisor. Um, and your preceptor can reject you. You know there are grounds for this. If you're misbehaving, if your preceptor is a loser, uh, you can you can reject each other. In which case, I'm not sure. Um, there's ways in which it works, and then you can get them back afterwards. But yeah, that's a whole other complex issue. Okay, thank you, Bante. We have a question. Mm -hmm. In the Satipatthana, what is the difference between citta and dhamma? Citta means mind, dhamma means dhamma. Two very different things. Citta refers to the mental activity, specifically. Dhamma, dhamma is a unique category among the four and it's hard to pin down 
but the best I've done is to explain it as the teachings of the Buddha so you have these three main uh, aspects of experience and then you have a sort of a directed so those ones are, are objective and they're neutral but then you have um, the steering of the mind towards enlightenment and that involves the Dhamma so what are the Dhammas that come into play in the practice the first one is the hindrances and you've got and I can never remember the order the senses and the aggregates I think that's that order the six senses the five aggregates you've got the uh, bojangas four noble truths eightfold noble path I can remember exactly the enumeration but um, it's the you could say it's the teachings the Dhamma of the Buddha or it's um, yeah because all four of them are Dhammas the body is a Dhamma feelings are a Dhamma mind is a Dhamma but this specifically number four here refers to the um, the aspects of the path so specific in relation to the Buddha the path of the Buddha ready for another question mm-hmm did you suspect Venerable Ajahn Tong was an arahant when you first met him, or did you take, or did it take time, and if so, how much time? Who said I suspected that Ajahn Tong is an arahant? Did I say that? I don't think so. You always speak very, very glowingly of him, though. He's obviously a very special person. He is a very special person. I will go on record as saying that. Now, mind you, a lot of people do say things like he's an arahant, but I always wonder how they would possibly know. Is it considered um, not proper to say something like that? Yeah, I mean, moreover, we're not allowed to. As monks, we're not allowed to say such things. I often feel like out of sync with the things that arise in my mind. As soon as I notice I'm not rising, falling, I've seen or heard three things in the past. Or my stepping left or rising is occurring slightly before the action. How can I delimit the present and be mindful now, not focused in the past or the future? What does it mean to say I've seen or heard three things? I, I think he means by the time he realizes that he's not mindful of oh, the rising and falling, he's had a bunch of other thoughts going on. Okay. Yeah, well, it's practice. It's not something you can control. What you're seeing is the non-self nature of the mind. And our practice has to accord with that. Our practice can't 
circumvent the non-self nature that we're trying to see from the practice. Our practice itself is non-self. The only um, control, you could say, is in choices. Every moment is a choice, and if you make the right choices every moment, uh, you will become more mindful. You know, there will be less distraction. But your mind is its not under your control. There is no fix. Looking for a quick fix, some way to change the nature of the mind, it, the only way is steady, constant, repeated uh, cultivation of ha habit, of this positive habit of seeing things clearly. Would you say that even noticing that you're that you're not noticing is a step in the right direction though? Yes, absolutely. I don't know, it's an outcome of the practice. A step in the, another step in the right direction would be to remind yourself knowing knowing the noticing is the outcome. When you notice that you're distracted, that's the outcome of of being mindful. But the step in the right direction is to get back on track and and apply mindfulness to even that. would like to know whether you will continue with the Dhammapada teachings. They are very helpful indeed. Are they really? I question that. I know they're enjoyable. I question how helpful they are. Oh, I think they are because the, the background stories that you explain have a lot of the Buddhist teaching in them. I mean, it's mm. not just, it's not entertainment. It's, they're entertaining, but it's not just entertainment. There's, there's always a good, uh, they're like the, you know, all the morality tales of other traditions. Yeah, I don't know. I think they're helpful. I think they have good messages. Yeah, but... You just need someone to help you produce them. Yeah, if I had someone to produce and maybe an audience, you know. Yeah. So... I could do it. Yeah, it's, I guess it's more someone to produce. If I had someone who was willing to do all the production, that would be. That would make it more reasonable. Because right now, you know, I've got the camera and all the things here, but then I have to go and set it up in the living room, and it's a lot of little things to set up and batteries, and I can do it all. But then I just kind of feel like, eh, I don't know. It's a bit much for a monk to be doing. Well, hopefully, you know, with uh, your attendance at university. Maybe that will somehow work its way into a project or an assignment or something. That would be cool. What if someone born with this knowledge is made to forget and lives based on instinct instead of the teachings? I don't understand. So if someone had knowledge of the Buddhist teachings and forgot and lived based on instinct instead? Skip it. Brain hurts, sorry. I'm going to skip that one. Okay. You're making my brain hurt. Well, well, maybe explain it a little bit better. What exactly do you want to know? I mean, it sounds like a weird question and I'm not really getting it. 
maybe while we're getting some clarification on that one. In the Satipatthana, what is the difference between contemplating the body internally and contemplating the body externally? Well, you can theoretically contemplate someone else's body. You can contemplate um, a dead body, for example, is a form of kaya nupasana satipatthana, but it's not... Um, it's not. It's not. Can't be used for vipassana. Mindfulness of the external of the body externally. They repeat that for each phrase, but really only some of them relate to the external body. Like the sampajana is nothing to do with the external body. Uh, the ariyapata is nothing to do with the external body. But the uh, cemetery contemplations. That's an external body. So. Some of them are external. Uh, the ones for vipassana are internal. Another way I think of of understanding external, um, maybe in regards to the external bases. So, seeing, there's seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, feeling, and thinking. The external are sight, are light, sound, uh, smells, tastes, feelings. And you can say thoughts, those are external. Internal are the eye, the ear, the nose, the tongue, the body, and the mind. Um, so if you want to think of it that way, then you've got external and internal. And external is still a part of the practice. So the question that wasn't clear before, um, the person is asking about using instinct rather than knowledge. Yeah, but what do you want to know? Robin, what do they want to know? I don't know. I, I take a guess that, you know, is you know, is it possible that someone who had knowledge of the Buddhist teachings, maybe they were born into a Buddhist family and knew a lot and then just went about their life and forgot it? but lived by instinct without really thinking about it, but that might not be right. Well, if you have a question, it should be a question about your situation, something that is... Okay, now we're getting closer. I have not accepted something internally. So tell me about that. What is it that you want to know? What, what, what can I do to help you? You have lost something, like you used to understand something, or you know, need a clear question about your practice. So, Robin, how was your trip? My trip was very good. I went camping for a couple of days, survived. I had a skunk. I had a skunk come up to me yesterday. Whoa. I was sitting at the campfire and there was just a skunk right at my feet. This is where it comes in handy to meditate regularly because I think a year ago I would have screamed. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I didn't react and I didn't get sprayed. Nice. So it was just a nice little side benefit of being a little more calm not jumpy. Mm -hmm. 
It was a very nice trip. Animals seem to respond quicker to calm, to, to mindfulness. They can really feel the vibes quicker than humans. So we have a little more detail on the question. Adults, adults were afraid of my knowledge dreams as a boy. I was giving an induced amnesia along with implants. Hmm. Okay. It's a little the story is a little difficult to tell, a little bit involved. Well, if you need some help, you can contact me hmm. okay have you read my booklet on how to meditate maybe that'll help it's a good place to start it's a good book to read over and over too i found somebody gave me really good advice when i started studying buddhism that when you first read a book you don't really absorb too much of it if you go back and read it a few months later, a year later, and I found that with your book, definitely. You know, each time I read it, I just find little things that I sometimes wonder if you updated it and added more to it, but I think that's probably not the case. I probably just missed things the first several times I, I read it. A lot, actually. People don't want to don't want to say it to me, don't want to tell me, but you can tell what they want to say is. Um, I only realized what it, how useful it was the second time I read it. Like basically, yeah. the first time, the first time uh, wasn't as impressive to them as the second time. But what they say is that, as you say, they got a lot out of it the second time. But it seems to me that um, the first time reading it was not. Well, and some people actually said that they had to read it a couple of times to really get what was being said. I mean, it it, it is fairly. I mean, maybe it's just not entirely clear, but it, you know, it, it's quite likely that. It's just a fairly radical teaching. And without actually, the problem with the book is that it's not actually telling you to do it. I mean, it's not, it's not forcing you to do it. It's not waiting, sitting there waiting for you to respond. It's, it's passive. Whereas if I teach you these things, I'm telling you right then and there to do it, and you're, you're right then and there doing it. Whereas someone might read the book and their mindset is to just, how you read a book to I, I want some information and that's not what this book is about it's not an information book it's a do this right now kind of book and uh, i think until you actually try and 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 until you realize flip that switch where you say oh wait it's telling me actually to really say seeing seeing <laughs> that even though that's exactly what it's saying the first time i think some people don't get it yeah, definitely. After after reading it and doing it and practicing and then going back and it's, there's definitely a lot more there that I just missed the whole first time. Hmm. Well, I'd recommend reading my booklet. I mean, there are other resources. It doesn't have to be my booklet, but so there's a reason I wrote it. It's not my teachings. It's teachings that were given to me and given to all of us. And I heard them so many times that I thought, well, gee, why don't we have a book? 
when there are books in in Thai. Mindful while reading or memorizing? Uh, no, not very well. I mean, you you do you can go back and forth, right? When you take a break or when you find yourself wandering, then you can come back and be mindful. But during the time when you're memorizing, it's a different activity. Not everything is meditation. Study is not really meditation, though you can do them in tandem. Study is study, and that's why it's something you have to moderate because if you study too much, it can detract from your meditation. We had one meditator who, one of the meditators who went crazy, not my meditator, someone else's meditator, back when I was just when I was not yet teaching. Um, and we mentioned to Ajahn Tong that he was uh, reading a lot of books. And I don't know that... Anyway, he was reading a lot of books. And Ajahn Tong said, that's fine, let him read the books because it'll disrupt his concentration. Because he was going crazy, he was really warped. So he said, yeah, it's okay, let him read because it'll, get, it'll disrupt his concentration. Which I thought was interesting. So a bit of a slow day, not too many questions. Thank you for tuning in everyone. Let's see, let's end it there then, come back again tomorrow. Thank okay. you, Bante. Nice to see you again, Robin, thank you. Thank you. Thanks everyone. <laughs>